Hello, everybody. Today is Wednesday, November 14th, and we're bringing you Block Digest number 140 at block height 550,086. So what is up? Oh, man, I guess we are just uh, sitting here in anticipation for tomorrow. I mean, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I don't anticipation. really Anticipation? Yes, <laughs> anticipation. I am. It's, I don't really care much, but I'm curious tomorrow. <laughs> it's only a day away yeah no <laughs> it's gonna be hilarious all right all right real quick though uh before we get in i just wanted to uh make a comment and correction regarding the commerce block stuff that we covered uh last show uh, their platform actually does not have a pegging mechanism for Bitcoin, which is kind of confusing given that they actually do have their own independent chain uh, aside from asset, or asset issuers' own chains, which they actually had a token sale for. But I do still stand by my entire assessment about the trust models between token issuers and it being very pointless to have an independent uh, chain for each asset. But I will be putting a bunch of stuff together and probably going over that in the next episode to dive into the very specific technical details and issues uh, with their system. And then also probably being a little more explicit in the breakdown of the different trust models involved between that and something like Liquid. But I just wanted to get that out of the way before we got started. So, I thought... I thought your correction was going to be that you're not a real ninja. Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a ninja as fuck. <laughs> well, the funniest thing is that, so if anyone else didn't see, we got a bunch of comments from the Commerce Block people below our last show because Shinobi did his whole analysis of it. And one of the points that they kept bringing up, all of these brigaders was that shinobi is not a real ninja he's just pretending to be one by calling himself shinobi and that their ceo at commerce block is a real ninja because he's trained at some temple um it turned out that actually the ceo that they were speaking of doesn't even call himself a ninja he says that he does kung fu which i guess doesn't make him a ninja so yeah, apparently there was a battle about who is the real ninja as we're having this battle about what is the real Bcash, which is almost as ridiculous. But, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Just going to a temple and sitting around for a while, like, yeah, you got to live the lifestyle, man. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. That guy, I know his name. It's hard to stay in this world of uh, digital ninja. Yeah, apparently somebody doesn't understand metaphors. But um, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. 
All right, correction and shit talk aside, let's get into it. So uh, first thing today, uh, Ledger Nano has just uh, been caught with a problem with the Ledger Nano S, and they do have a patch pending for it right now, but I do have to say that Honestly, at this point, I am just flabbergasted that BTC Chip is still allowed to speak on behalf of the company and that he hasn't personally nuked the entire company's reputation with the way that he handles any kind of security vulnerability or software glitch. It seems like every single time there is an issue with one of their hardware products or their software, he refuses to acknowledge anything. Like he refuses to take responsibility. He refuses to acknowledge that there is something that put users at risk in whatever way there was and just consistently downplays it, act like there's no way that this exploit could have been possibly exploited. And half of the time doesn't even issue a, a, a warning to users or give them advice on how to mitigate the the fallout from whatever the specific exploit was. And like honestly at this point like and, and it's not even really because of any like fundamental issues with the the product itself. But I w am at the point where I'm going to actively start recommending people do not buy the Ledger Nano S instead of just not recommending it to them because like their CTOs response to any kind of security issue is just so piss poor and inexcusable that I have no faith that if a, a, an actual serious problem was found with the product, that he would actually handle it in a responsible way that made users aware of the risks and actually gave them a way to mitigate it. But this specific exploit though, uh, sorry, Jeannie, I want to get that out of the way real quick, just kind of been generally ranting. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I have the same a similar thought, and I don't know if I would go around saying don't use the ledger devices. I mean, I've had a number. This is now. I mean, I haven't had a run in with him, but I've now. This is like my second or third time, um, seeing BTC chips, which I can't remember his real name. Um, he goes by BTC chip or BT chip on Twitter. Uh, this is like my th uh, second or third time seeing him respond to concerns about a vulnerability, which, you know, serious or how much it was exploited um, is kind of beside the point because he hasn't had, there ha hasn't even been enough time to assess whether it has been exploited. And in this case, it would be um, it's a problem with a lot of the hardware wallets where they, they, the main attack vector that they see with these devices is a key compromise or theft issue, but they don't think about data exfiltration, which is what this is about um, in terms of third-party websites being able to, um, to exfiltrate your public key, which could then be used to, you know, look at what coins you own and stuff. So it's an infosec problem, not a uh, key security specifically problem uh, and that's a problem I see with all the hardware wallets but when something like this is brought up um, I feel like or any of the other vulnerabilities that have been brought up I feel like they're always downplayed there's there's no I don't see an effort to just say okay we're going to deal with this and move on and here's how you mitigate it 
Um, yeah, I mean, if you want to see what the exploit is, I can bring it. Shinobi, I'll send you the... Uh, uh, where did it go? Actually, I don't have the GitHub issue, but basically, um, yeah, it's it'll allow uh, a third-party website to possibly grab uh, your public keys or your XPubs. I think I think that was described in the issue. Um, and so, yeah, I I agree with Shinobi in the sense that I feel like even if minor, what he considers to be minor vulnerabilities are treated this way and just very dismissive and not really being willing to explore the possibilities or to put any effort into researching how it could have possibly been worse than he expected. Uh, I feel like if anything more serious does come along, I, I don't trust him or, I mean, I don't know anyone else at Ledger, but I don't really trust them at this point to effectively communicate to users when they could possibly be in danger. So I don't think I would go around saying don't buy the ledger because I still think it has, there are some advantages um, in terms of the way they handle the, with the screen and the other functionality they have on the device. There are some advantages in that way that they have of the Trezor, but then the Trezor has some advantages over the ledger in terms of their hardware being much more open than the ledger, um, which is why I would probably be recommending, if I recommended any, it would probably be Trezor over ledger. Uh, but yeah, I really, I don't, I don't like this behavior, like just the behavior in general puts me off and I don't appreciate that. And I feel like he should like Ledger, I don't know how much power he has in the company, but Ledger should not be allowing him to basically at, act as a very poor customer support person on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, you really do have to kind of keep up with the uh, developments of these, uh, you know, hardware wallets and, uh, wallets in general. And, uh, so I was, uh, yeah, I was just looking at this and thinking like, you know, a lot of this is just about how you uh, store your Bitcoins, right? Like, I mean, you know, I wouldn't have everything all in one place. Like, uh, it's a good idea to split this stuff up and always keep up to date with these uh, development teams and make sure that they're staying with these uh, updates and understanding the way that the current Bitcoin network is operating. And so, yeah, it's important that those people that are front forward facing on Twitter and everything are you know, at least uh, keeping people, especially with hardware wallets, keeping them kind of uh, calm about the situation until and just letting them know that there is being worked on. But uh, yeah, I've still got this, you know, Ledger Nano S and I'm still planning on using it a little bit. But I mean, I'm definitely going to be precautious about it, make sure it's updated, make sure I'm, you know, doing everything the right way. Yeah, to get into the actual exploit, though, it's pretty much an issue with how they have their API set up and calling the device. And um, there is a get wallet public key request um, in terms of the device interfacing with the actual computer it's connected to. And as of right now, that is a completely unauthenticated call. So as long as your device is plugged into a computer and unlocked uh, through the pin code, pretty much anything can make that call to the device and gain access to any of your public keys. So this is pretty much potentially a complete privacy loss. And when, when responding to people kind of critiquing Ledger for this, uh, BTC chip pretty much just ignored any kind of issue here. Like there, there's no possible way this could have been exploited or users were at risk. And 
when Max Hilleberg from uh, WCN actually recommended users move over to a new seed and stop using the previous one, um, you know, personally, I would say just if you use your device very frequently, like if you just leave it sitting, you know, in the shelf or whatever, and don't access it often at all, I would say it's probably not a need to do that. But like, this is a really serious issue. I mean, it's not just a website, like any malware on your computer could be, you know, accessing this in the same way. It's a completely unauthenticated call. And as well, like there are a million risks besides just a malicious website. I mean, like, for instance, a few months ago, we covered a crypto jacking malware that actually infected routers and was inter was pretty much injecting the crypto jacking website into web page requests at the router level. So pretty much anything that can slip that request into any network connection you have would be able to actually make this call to the ledger and compromise it as well as anything locally on your machine. And like things like Windows, which are not <laughs> the most secure operating system out there, are very widely used. Like, you know, that's one of the main issues in the space, I think, is so many people use Windows, but so little developer effort is put into it. Like, the fact that he's not acknowledging that this very well could have been widely exploited, especially with the prevalence of chain analysis companies in this space, and the fact that they make money directly off of de-anonymizing users is ridiculous. And like, you know, like I, I will actively recommend people do not buy this product because they are not like forthright with the actual downsides of exploits. And they are not actually like telling their users how to mitigate the consequences of things. Like every time something is found, they pretend like there's no issue. They don't give users any real advice about what could have happened, how to undo the damage if possible to something that could have happened. Like it's just absurd. Yeah, like I was saying, man, you just have to keep up with the development teams and keep up with what's going on. And uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of websites out there that are malicious. And, you know, it's always just you, you're in cryptocurrency, you need to be avoiding malware and uh, anything that really compromises your system. So always stay up with the, the developments. And, you know, that's why it's important that we cover malware as it's coming out and these big ransomware attacks. I mean, you can't just, uh, yeah, I mean, like you could do crazy glacier cold storage and then just, uh, you know, put it away. Um, but, you know, if you're going to use these uh, new technologies, you know, it's important you stay up to date with everything that's going on in the space. All right. So next up. More Bcash news, which I am irritatedly guessing. That's why so many people are watching right now. <laughs> but um, all the hype, man. So uh, Dead Almix, uh, or Amory uh, Sichet, the lead developer of Bitcoin ABC, has at this point publicly stated that the proof of work change option is not off the table and is actually advising developers to prepare a patch in, in, in case that this is actually necessary. In his words, it would be better to have a patch and not need it than to need a patch and not have it. And so 
you know, given the the dynamics of the situation, like uh, Bitcoin, Satoshi's vision has around 75% of the hash rate, um, last I checked, and actually for a brief while uh, this morning had actually surpassed the price of BCH, ABC on the Poloniex futures market. Although, again, last I checked, it, it, ABC was back on top in terms of price. I mean, this is not... You know, this isn't like, a, I would say in the BIP 148 uh, situation, a highly unlikely event. Like, I think there is a very real possibility that this has to happen. Like, with is, like unless miners are pretty much just switching over to end-chain affiliated pools just to troll people and try to create a false impression of large support for it, then this is a very serious potential like craig is obviously not a rational person and again caveat if this hash rate is genuinely supporting his client like they very well could wind up attacking the abc chain and really there is no alternative if they are willing to burn money and operate at a loss to really continue preventing that chain from operating because it, it doesn't really matter uh, well i mean it, it it doesn't matter that much that a lot of the exchanges are supporting it if the chain is effectively unusable and those exchanges really only have access to money that was safely deposited before the fork like that's there's no ability for new liquidity to come in and help find that that price like it, it it kind of hamstrings the pricing mechanism and really at that point like you have to change the proof of work like if your network can't function your markets are being inhibited by an attack like this like it does not make it a clear-cut thing if the the attackers are irrational enough to just continue burning money to assure that your chain can't operate and to really go a step further, like last week, a, a new mining pool, uh, Shark Pool, which is operated by Cash Pay Solutions, it's a, a parent company of a few Bcash projects, um, a wallet. Um, they brought back Mike Hearn's Lighthouse project and an e commerce platform, have set this pool up specifically to perform 51% attacks. And I mean, they're not just going to stop at Bitcoin ABC either. I mean, obviously that's very likely going to be the first uh, target of their attacks. If, if this is not something that's just gonna fold and disappear under a bunch of hot air, but they're going to be trying to attack other altcoins as well. Like pretty much any altcoin that they can muster hash power for, they're going to mine empty blocks for and just dump the rewards on that coin to buy more Bcash. And, on the Satoshi's vision side. And pretty much the rationale from the head of this company is like anything except Bcash is an attack on Bitcoin and won't be allowed to exist. Like it's really, in, in my opinion, sounds like a deranged lunatic just like Craig Wright. Like if you're not doing what I want you to do, then fuck you, you're completely illegitimate. And they're planning on just rotating their hash power around and attempting to attack and prevent the functioning of any altcoin that they can which is just i mean honestly like 
it, it, as far as like very small market cap shit coins, yes, this could be sustained for a long time. As far as Bcash, like, you know, this could potentially go on for a while. But I mean, outside of insignificantly valued shit coins, like I don't really see the potential that this could be sustained forever. Like Craig is talking two years of no trading. Like that's absurd. Like you, you are literally talking like tens or hundreds of millions of dollars with no profit just being burned. And I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's absurd. You can't keep that up. And if, if Calvin Iyer really is stupid enough to just blindly bankroll Craig, whatever he wants to do, then it's going to wind up costing him a fortune. Like it, it, this is not a rational or sustainable course of action. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something where I'm just looking at it, thinking about, you know, all these guys were just toasting drinks and stuff like a year ago about how Bitcoin Cash is going to be the real Bitcoin. And now we just see them going back and forth about, oh, you know, BSV is Bitcoin or BSV is the real BCH or, or however they're labeling it. It just I mean, I hope that this whole thing goes through and we're going to see some craziness going on on that chain and some reorgs and just like really to kind of see how all that stuff will play out. Cause I think you might be right that it might have to happen because it seems like some of these, you know, game theory, the way it's going to play out is eventually it has to play out, right? Like uh, in order for us to learn something about how a proof of work change would take place with real economic nodes behind that activity and, it takes a situation like this and it would be a lot of, uh, you know, that blockchain particle collision going on where we could look at it and say like, this is what's going on. This is what happened. And this is how we can use that uh, to go forward in the future and say that this is, you can use that to basically move forward and say that this has happened in the past and it could happen again in the future. And yeah, I mean that coin geek billionaire, uh, Calvin Iyer, I mean, he seems like he's pretty caught up behind Craig Wright and Craig Wright seems really fueled up. But like I was saying, a year ago, they were all toasting. It, it just makes me wonder, like, if there's some, you know, like they're doing this just to get everybody to get us more viewers, right? I mean, it's like people get jazzed when there's some kind of conflict going on. And, you know, Bitcoin Cash was just sitting there without much going on. And now all of a sudden, a lot of people are interested to figure out what exactly is going on. So, this is a little bit of that conflict brings eyes and interest and uh, maybe they're just using that for marketing and everything will realign at some point and we'll just see them come together. But I mean, the way that the speech has been going on Twitter, it really does feel like they're going to go through with this. We're going to see reorgs. We might see a proof of work change. I mean, it might be an all out war. It's going to be a, I mean, they're calling it a hash war. I mean, it seems like we're seeing battle lines drawn whenever you say there's mining pools specifically for 51 percent attacks i mean yeah it's gonna get interesting i mean like uh you know we're gonna have to check out tomorrow with fine tooth comb i mean it's like craig is like been progressively alienating more and more of the bcash community over the last year it's i'd like i mean yeah there's always the potential this is just some show to try and stop the just like, I mean, the, the price has just been dropping like a rock for a year, minus like a few pathetic attempts at pumping. But it's, this just seems way too elaborate and way too 
like the the downside risk is you just completely fragment the entire Bcash community and then have no unity going forward. And at that point, like, was that really worth just a, a ridiculous marketing attempt to get more attention? Yeah, I mean, what little Bitcoin Cash community there is, I mean, they really have become polarized through this. I mean, uh, you know, I didn't even know there was that many people behind Bitcoin Cash until this whole thing strolled up. And that's where it's like, uh, yeah, even if they decide to realign and, you know, move forward together, I mean, it's definitely going to leave the communities, you know, fractured. I think, uh, I think you're right, man. I mean, this might have to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's tomorrow, tomorrow. <sighs> yeah, it's only a day away. All right, Janine. So I believe you have an update for one of our other favorite scammers. <laughs> Man. Yeah. There's so, so many. You guys, yeah, you guys may remember we covered what was going on with a guy named Morgan Raccoons who goes by Node Father and Metabolo on Twitter uh, in episode 82. I think it was 82. That was when we just talked about his case in general when he was arrested um, on charges of money laundering and operating a money services business without a license. I think that was... That was earlier this year, like March or February, something like that, um, spring or late winter. And then we also had another episode, uh, 114, which was with um, Chris Rice Crypto, who was someone who used to work uh, briefly on the Bitcointopia project, which was basically trying to sell land out in the middle of nowhere in Nevada to cryptocurrency enthusiasts in order to build some kind of bitcoin utopia um village or something and um i mean it was pretty hilarious because after that was announced we saw within the first several months that he only got as far as basically building a tent on a plot of land that we're not even quite sure was in the area but presumably it was he had, he had bought uh i think it was like 4.5 acres um, but he hadn't really built anything. He wasn't having any construction crews come out. Uh, basically, there was just a tent that he was using while he was there, and he dug some like trenches around the tent. Very impressive. Um, so in a, in a you know just a couple of months, he didn't get very far. But he was claiming that he had you know bought tens or hundreds of acres of land that was going to be used for Bitcointopia, and he was already selling off acres of land to people. The problem was, um, as we talked about in that episode uh, 114, that he didn't actually have um, the land rights to that property. He hadn't actually bought more than, I think it was somewhere between like 4.3 or 4.5 acres. Um, so that was a problem because uh, I mean, if you go to the threads uh, today on the Block Digest Twitter, um, I've added updates to prior threads where we talked about him having a history of scamming people through other loan schemes and stuff like that. Even for his legal case uh, earlier this year, he was asking people to loan him money that he would then pay back later, uh, which I don't think that's happened either, obviously. Uh, but a lot of his, you know, scams go back uh, at least two years before this. That was when I first became aware of it was about two years ago. 
Um, unfortunately, a lot of people were not aware of that history and unknowingly or otherwise were promoting at least his legal case, which then kind of compounded the issue with Bitcointopia and people were, you know, seeing that and thinking, oh, well, this guy is like, you know, fighting the government, so should buy land from him too. He must be trustworthy because all of these Bitcoin people are uh, supporting him. But no, uh, that was not the case at all. So the recent development, um, well, it's recent in terms of the documents being published, but apparently he was arrested at the end of October again by uh, after a search warrant was issued by the Department of Homeland Security, specifically uh, an agent who may be a fake name or not, but calls himself Nick Jones. And he basically uh, filed an affidavit to support the issuance of a search warrant for various devices that Morgan owns, uh, mostly a phone, a tablet, and uh, also a backpack in addition to devices. And basically they are not, I, I don't, rem it's a big document and it's linked in the description. I didn't see what the specific charges are, but I believe they did mention like various parole violations because he is still on parole from the previous uh, charges that I don't think that's been settled. And now there's a new charge of um, operating a land fraud scheme. So the fact that he's been doing the Bitcointopia stuff while he was being investigated for money laundering things with local Bitcoins, uh, well, that is not good for his, <laughs> that is not good for his case at all. Um, probably not going to go over well. Uh, and the interesting thing to me is actually this agent, he basically details his entire history of investigating him. Uh, which goes all the way back to September 2015 when he made an initial initial search of uh, San Diego-based uh, Bitcoin exchangers or people who were willing to do uh, Bitcoin to fiat trades uh, or maybe crypto-crypto trades. And he found that Metabolo, a.k.a. Morgan Raccoons, was one of the uh, biggest sellers. So he has been basically following his public profiles for at least three years now uh which by the way you know if if you don't know about like law enforcement practices um do, if if it's something that a public person an ordinary citizen can do like if i can just go and look at your twitter profile that's not technically considered like an investigation uh it's like you don't have to apply for a search warrant to look at someone's twitter profile like that's not considered investigation activity that you would have to get permission for um, but basically he's basically just been looking at, uh, Morgan's public pages for the past three years and connecting the dots between his, you know, various identities that he's been using on Facebook and Twitter and local Bitcoins. And he, uh, I mean, it doesn't really take that much investigation because the Bitcointopia stuff was very public and we were covering it several months ago. I believe the episode with uh, Rice Crypto was back in June or July. So it's been a couple of months since we were very public about the fact that we knew about this. So no doubt they were going to eventually find out about it. Uh, and it was pretty clear that he did not own the land that he was claiming to own. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And this is not going to go well for him. Uh, and people are saying that like we should support him to... I don't know, prevent this from being fallout for Bitcoin. But to be honest, I like I don't see how supporting a guy who is 
trying to scam people out of money is a good idea for Bitcoin. Yeah, I think we should say that we're past that time of just uh, blind support. I mean, like, uh, you know, Bitcoiners, they're all shapes and sizes. And, uh, you know, there was just definitely a past there where anybody getting involved in that should have uh, done a little investigation into that before they just jumped wholeheartedly into it. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, somebody with a past like that, it's going to come back to haunt them. And, you know, the CEO or whoever he wants to label himself will be facing these problems and they might end up in jail again, or, you know, they're going to end up in some sort of hang up to where your investment could be in trouble. And yeah, I mean, this is something that we covered a while back. We had Rice Crypto on to talk about it, like you're saying, and he's also been putting out information on, on a regular basis. I've seen him updating everybody on Twitter that this is still going on. And uh, so, I mean, like it, it, we're starting to see all this enforcement come into place, right? Like uh, the SEC just made a move against Ether Delta. We've seen some recent uh, ICOs get uh, served various uh, get served papers from Colorado and Texas as far as like, you know, people just making sales to their citizens. And I mean, that could come back to haunt them too. I mean, like, you know, these things, uh, like we were saying in that Ether Delta story, the SEC keeps their eyes on things for years. And I mean, this has been a very public facing problem. And I mean, it just takes a little bit of real investigation into that to see that problem. But um, yeah, I guess a lot of people were just sort of blind supporting. I mean, uh, we are, you know, definitely past the days of where, you know, like Bitcoin popped up in mainstream media. Woo! Like, let's keep it there. And, and you know, I mean, like, it's it's going to be there from now on. And I mean, like, um, you know, should really look about who we're uh, supporting and what their goals are and everything. And I mean, you know, a lot of that had to do with just, I think, libertarian support of people that wanted to create another one of these. Just like, I think is people have this concept of like, they can't fix things they have to rebuild everything like because this isn't the only project like this there's a new project coming out now where uh you know they're trying to build a city in the desert and uh, and try to do everything right from the ground up and i guess that's just a an appealing idea it's something that people out west uh, are really get excited about because i guess it brings back those days of the western front and you can just build up a homestead and start from scratch and but, you know, this is all about fixing the system and solving problems. And, uh, you know, that's where the hard work comes in is really trying to uh, get people to actually look at this technology in a way that's actually going to solve problems and not just, uh, you know, fill your pockets. And so, yeah, it's important to investigate all these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is called justice. Like, say what you want about the government. I really don't care. Like Morgan was objectively scamming people out of money by defrauding them. And well, here are the consequences. Alrighty though, Janine, uh, got another thing to bring up. Yeah. I find it uh, kind of interesting that I, uh, well, we mentioned the interview that tone Bays did with Craig Wright on the last show and I was making points about how I didn't think he was the right person to do that interview and that it wasn't really worth people's time. Uh, coincidentally, he um, on the day of that show, I believe he made a tweet uh, saying that he was a fan of BitMEX 
and he shilled his uh, affiliate link for 10% savings, whatever that means. I don't even know how this works. But basically, you know, he's very, a lot of these people who are like crypto celebrities or pretend they're crypto celebrities do this affiliate marketing stuff. And it's really annoying to people like me who think it's, it's like only a few hops away from being a complete scam. Uh, so he made this tweet November 11th about being a fan of BitMEX and here's my affiliate link. And then I believe it was the next day he made another tweet saying that he had been banned from BitMEX on suspicion of being a U.S. citizen, which I believe he is, uh, even though he was making all of these claims about how he hasn't been in the U.S. for uh, more than 30 days in the last year. That still makes you a U.S. citizen, and I'm not particularly familiar with BitMEX's policy, but I assume that because they just banned him outright that he, uh, they probably have a policy of being very strict with any U.S. citizens, like they have to get verified and provide a bunch of documentation. Uh, I don't, Shinobi, do you know what BitMEX's policy is regarding U.S. citizens? Yep, we're not allowed there. Period. End of story. Ah, okay. And uh, citizens of Quebec in Canada. Okay. Well, that that makes it very clear. Okay, so if you are a U.S. citizen and you are trading on BitMEX, first of all, you're not allowed there. Two. If you know that you're not allowed there, you should not be publicly tweeting to your Twitter account with 100,000 plus followers that you not only use the exchange, but you are making income from it through affiliate marketing. That's a bad idea. So no surprise, next day, Tone announces, oh, I've been banned from Bitfinex on suspicion of being a US citizen, which he is. And he, the other interesting thing that he said in the tweet is that half of his income comes from this affiliate marketing stuff which I find I have so many thoughts on, but I don't know if we want to get into that. Um, what I did find funny is that John Carvalho uh, made a response tweet to that announcement saying, hey, friendly advice, um, maybe you should, because another thing that Tone did was he was saying, well, now that half of my income is gone, I have to increase my my uh, my consultants, consultancy rates. Um <laughs> And John was like, that's not really how this works. Like, you don't make a really poor mistake like this and then say, oh, I'm just going to make you all pay double. And then Tone made some comment about like, well, if I make less and I'll, if I'm making less and I'll do less, again, equilibrium. I don't know exactly what he means by that. Uh, if he had, if, if his assumption is uh, that if he, puts less work into it then it's somehow more valuable or I, I have no idea what his rationale is basically his idea that this incident should mean that he should get paid more because he mostly relies on affiliate marketing uh no <laughs> i don't know much about these affiliates i mean it's something that i've heard a lot about but i mean just yeah i, I don't know how I don't know anything about that side of the stuff, but I mean, it is really sloppy. I'm, what was that you were going to say? Well, I was just going to, for anyone who doesn't know what affiliate marketing is, um, at a very basic level, it just means like you create an account on some kind of business or you're a customer of a business. And then that business tells you, well, if you share this link to our web, this very specific link that is 
a combination of like our website plus a, you know, they usually put some kind of extra hash or code at the end that's specific to you so that they know that you were the person that shared the link. They say, if you share this link with people and people click it and they sign up and they start doing like X amount of dollars in trading or they do X amount of trades, then you get a certain cut of either, I don't know, the profits that the exchange makes from those trades or something like that. Some kind of reward for you marketing the exchange to people. So that's basically what he half of his income comes from is basically sharing links. People click on them and they sign up to BitMEX. Um, Marketing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's pretty much they get a cut of the exchanges take whether the person trading uh, is losing money or gaining money. So it's like pretty much once people click a link, no matter how they're doing personally, like you're making passive income off of it. But like, yeah, I kind of I kind of feel bad for Tone, but at the same time, it's like, dude, like, come on, you, you should have seen this coming. I mean, like, dude, like you don't just publicly advertise your trading on an exchange you're not allowed to trade on. And also, like, I'm not 100 percent sure on this, but I'm I'm pretty sure that you can actually uh, form a small corporation, which is like almost nothing really in the grand scheme of things to incorporate and then can legally trade uh, on BitMEX or like other exchanges that U.S. citizens are barred from under that corporation. And so it's kind of like, you know, dude, like I, I kind of feel bad for him, but it's like, come on, man. Like the, the way to do this above board was right there and you chose not to do it. Like there, there was an option to prevent this from being a possible thing, and you did not cover your bases. Like you, you should have done that. Yeah, I mean, look, if this was like, I don't know, a person from Africa or the Middle East or so- someone who lived in an area that you know had a lot of economic issues, and their only way to their one of their few incomes was you know trading. And maybe that country is blocked from trading on this exchange or something. And they were very careful about making sure that, you know, they didn't, you know, they weren't public about the fact that they were a person living in this country or a citizen of this country trading on this exchange. And then they just got found out by accident. I would have sympathy for that person because, you know, you know, geo blocks suck. But um, I do not feel sorry for a former Wall Street banker who clearly has enough money that he could have done what you just described, incorporating a company or simply used another exchange that allows for us citizens or something. I, I don't feel sorry for a guy who is not only that kind of person, but also just basically publicly doxed his account uh, on his very followed Twitter account uh, for no other reason than to continue to do affiliate marketing. <laughs> like, I don't have sympathy for that. I just can't. I don't feel it. <laughs> I kind of feel bad for the embarrassment of the whole thing. Because, I mean, it is like you're like we're saying, I mean, you're forward-facing public figure that talks about crypto investments and trading on a regular basis. And, I mean, if you're doing that, then you think you should be able to understand the nuances of uh, regulation, especially because, you know, Tone's always talking about regulations and he's a kind of a libertarian spirit. And so he's keeping up with all these things. And you think he would understand that, you know, BitMEX does have a very clear policy and some of these, you know, these policies have been around for a long time now. And uh, 
I don't know if he just got lulled into a sense of security because, you know, he's around these traders that are incorporated and doing the wise thing. And, uh, you know, down in Mexico or, you know, some people, they uh, they move and, you know, they renounce their citizenship and get citizenship to other places to do these kind of trades. I mean, it's just uh, it is just kind of sloppy and it's a little embarrassing. Kind of feel bad for that. But I mean, like, yeah, the whole John Carvalho back and forth about raising his rates for this it just really is like, wait a minute. You just publicly made a mistake in like what you're advising people in and you want to raise your rates like, uh, you know, if anything, this is just showing like why, you know, everybody who considers themselves an expert should be looking at all these things all the time. And you can't really let your guard down. And I mean, uh, you know, also just the risk of thinking someone is an expert and like, uh, you know, people that might have followed along with him in this past couple of weeks who said, oh, you know, Tone's trading on BitMEX and he's a U.S. citizen. I'm a U.S. citizen. I'll start trading on BitMEX without looking into that real policy and understanding the nuances of all this. Well, they just did something illegal, too. And so uh, that's where, you know, yeah, it's sloppy and it's embarrassing. Yeah. And the reason I made this a story, I mean, not to say that it's illegal in the same way that Morgan Raccoon's scheme was illegal, but it was kind of in the general theme of people getting caught doing schemes that may have ethical issues with them. And I do think there are, like, in terms of affiliate marketing, when you click on these links, obviously that established, like, you, by clicking on the link, obviously they're keeping track of a certain pattern of behavior about what you're doing and how you sign up to the service and how you're buying a product in order to pay someone else. So it's another one of these things where it's like marketing, advertising that has this underlying surveillance structure and aspect to it, which I don't like. Um, and also because there are a lot of people uh, with like, I mean, probably a lot of them have bought their followers, but there are a lot of accounts on Twitter, in, uh, in crypto Twitter specifically that have a lot of followers and they seem to get a lot of these they have they have a lot of these passive income schemes coming up all the time in their tweets like please sign up for this exchange use my affiliate link uh the famous one is obviously richard hart who claims to be a billionaire but somehow still needs passive income from affiliate marketing amazing um and so i wanted to make this a story just to show that this is one of those schemes that can really bite you in the ass because if you're doing this affiliate marketing stuff like this is how easily they can take it away from you. Like you call it passive income because not only are you not really doing it's passive, you're not doing actively anything to earn that money. It's just your basically it's your reputation and how many followers you get and how many people click on a link. Um, and that can be taken away from you very easily because you don't really have a relationship with any of these businesses. Like they do this affiliate marketing thing because obviously they're earning money off of people clicking the links, but at any time they can just cut you off. Like they don't care. Like <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not a thing that I would count on for half of my income. Yeah. I mean, the affiliate link thing is something where I've seen it where people are very close to the company and they just have one affiliate link. And I suppose it's kind of like the company's way of, you know, throwing somebody a bone because they enjoy the product or something like that. And I can understand that situation a little bit because, you know, it's hard to find a job nowadays and maybe it's a product you believe in and you want to help people. But yeah, certainly be wary of these people that just have a lot of affiliate links and are tweeting things about how to make, you know, how they're, 
you know, want you to go to this place or look at this coin and all that, because it's definitely some something, some situation where, you know, they're not exactly just all right and doing well to where you can think they're going to get your money in the right investment. So, yeah, um, be wary of the whole thing. Just be aware. And, yeah, I mean, if you see somebody with a bunch of affiliate links, it might be a red flag. But uh, I guess let's go ahead and uh, turn turn the corner here a little bit and start talking about, uh, yeah, different countries and the way that they're handling crypto. And, you know, we're talking about all this nuance and regulation. So let's get into what's going on in some other countries and how they're starting to adapt here with this. So uh, this week, the U.S. sanctions to remove Iran from the uh, SWIFT network, which is, uh, you know, just an acronym society for worldwide interbank financial telecommunication it kicked in this week, and now it looks like they're getting closer to finalizing their plans for a national cryptocurrency. And uh, back in May, the U.S. imposed these sanctions, and for the first time in history, really, Iran's central bank has been officially cut off of the network that allows them to send and receive transactions to and from its allies. So, uh, yeah, this has been the case for a long time now, where if the U.S. isn't happy with the current political relations with the country, they could use their power as the central issuer and controller of the value transfer system we use for global economic markets as settlement to bend their will. And, uh, you know, this has become just a, a problem where people like myself get real passionate about the idea of Bitcoin being able to help people. So Kingston University professor Steve Keen criticized this move, saying that, uh, quote, the U.S. has gone rogue and cannot be allowed to dictate economic or political policy to the rest of the world. The sooner the rest of the world develops an alternate alternate payment system, possibly working through SWIFT, but using a basket of currencies as the basis for a supranational unit of exchange, the better. And uh, yeah, as in, you know, as like I'm saying, as an American, I can kind of agree with this position. I mean, like uh, not necessarily through the SWIFT network, but like a uh, you know a basket of different currencies and regional currencies to help people. Uh, you know, route around these issues that they're facing as far as uh, political pressure through central banks. And uh, so, yeah, it's these systems that have allowed uh, us to perpetuate war across the globe and incentive and it's incentivized to keep doing so to keep that power structure in place. I mean, of all the weapons we have to hurt people, this economic weapon we have causes uh, too much damage in the world and it's not sustainable and it's uh, it's a damage to where the people committing it don't even really understand that they're doing so. So, yeah. However, in today's world of cryptocurrencies, we are for the first time seeing these situations circumvented. Six months ago, when the sanctions were put into place, Russian, Russia and Iran came to an agreement to use cryptocurrencies for economic settlement. And uh, back in August, we saw some details on this crypto. According to the ISC, a central bank affiliated body with Iran, it will be backed by the all right, I'm going to mispronounce this. Is it the real or the real? Uh, <laughs> that's the Iran currency and is uh, developed on the Hyperledger fabric. So the ISC also clarified its intention to use the digital real as the interbank payment instrument. And in, that's in phase one and local payment medium in phase two. So it's been working this phase one for the past six months, and it looks like this phase two is currently being worked. This uh, CCN article in the description points out a major hotel booking platform in Iran, hotels in Iran. 
Uh, that's what it's called. Have have stated to have started to accept crypto as a payment method, and uh, Leon Hard Weiss, the co-founder and president of the Hong Kong Bitcoin Association, reported, "quote Many people still look at cryptocurrencies and say, I won't use this, but already in 2018, people are getting into the situation where they have to use cryptocurrencies as their only payment option, or else they can't conclude their trade." This is how Bitcoin will eventually be adopted. And uh, yeah, that's pretty accurate. I mean, we are seeing this in Venezuela where the local Bitcoin volume has been soaring to new all-time highs recently. And it looks like this might be a similar situation in Iran. And, uh, you know, here in this uh, next story I'm going to get into is uh, it looks like, you know, this uh, other country is going to be working like this. So, uh, but Real quick, just a comment. Did you guys have anything to say about Iran being kicked out of the SWIFT network? Yeah, I mean, this is like, why on earth would you think this is a viable move anymore in a world with Bitcoin? Like all you're doing by cutting them out of traditional wire transfer systems is just leaving them no alternative except cryptocurrencies. And they're going to embrace it. Like coming from the attitude, assuming that the people running these things do not want Bitcoin to catch on, you're doing the exact opposite thing you should be doing. You're taking the kinds of actions that are going to guarantee it catches on. Like if, if, if people are cut off from something that's useful, they're going to look for a substitute good. And right now, the best substitute good out there is Bitcoin. Like they cannot be locked out of it. Like they're going to start using it. It's inevitable. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you, man. I mean, it's like it just we're putting people in a corner and they're going to have to decide. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are seeing this new technology as a way to route around this problem that's been around for a long time. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of pushing their hand. And uh, it's not very smart if you consider these people your foe. But um, let me just jump into this next one because it's uh, related. So. Yeah, very similar to this story in Iran, uh, but uh, different motives. Maybe a greater example to give as to why people, why this is in people's best interests, even in U.S. territories. Um, the Marshall Islands president, Hilda Heen, back in April, announced a plan to launch a national cryptocurrency in its best interest to avoid, you know, uh, funding projects and being stuck under rising sea levels. The uh, Marshall Islands is a uh, one of these islands that's under threat of rising sea levels, and they're pretty worried about climate change over there. And uh, they're U.S. territory, and the petrodollar is, uh, like we're saying, I mean, it's, a, uh, it's an incentive program that's just going to keep moving forward. And if they can find some way to fund climate change research around the petrodollar, because, I mean, I guess they, you know, people using the petrodollar to fund this research is not a very smart move. So yeah, since this announcement back in April, the IMF has said, quote, we would, this would increase macroeconomic and financial integrity risk and elevate the risk of losing the last U.S. dollar correspondent banking relationship. And her, uh, that's in quote, and her political opponents accused Heen of damaging the nation's reputation with this idea of a national cryptocurrency and used the situation to hold a vote to strip her of her position as the island nation's president. That ended in a 16-16 deadlock vote of no confidence, and it appears that this uh, plan will continue, or at least her presidency with this plan. 
And so uh, that plan is to issue a cryptocurrency called the Sovereign, and it will be used for public infrastructure and to help blend the reverse, reverse the effects of climate change. And uh, it's hard to say what the best plan is for these regional cryptocurrencies, but it will be effective at helping solve problems around these third-party interests, including keeping the current energy structure in place to prop up a value system. There are so many untold consequences of that, and uh, that's why we are seeing friend and foe of the U.S. working to solve their problem with this new technology. And that's where I think these two stories are a pretty interesting dichotomy of two countries using a, uh, a regional cryptocurrency to uh, help solve a problem. I mean, uh, whether or not they're going to be successful, I mean, that's something we're going to follow along and keep up to date. But uh, like Shinobi's saying, I mean, their hand is kind of forced through the situation. And um, it's where, you know, it might not be the smartest move, but just like, you know, like that Bcash uh, fork might have to happen. I mean, like, I think these things kind of have to happen. I mean, you know, it takes a lot for the market to learn. And uh, sometimes, yeah, that requires like actually going through with this uh, proposed plans all the way through. I mean, like this is the first time Iran's really actually been cut off of the Swiss system. And, you know, that's after six months of setting up this uh, cryptocurrency settlement with Russia. And I mean, as far as, uh, you know, they're they're moving in the direction to solve these problems. I mean, this weapon that we've had for a long time to shut people down and inflate their currency uh, through central banks is something that's not going to be a thing in the future. And uh, we're starting to see an end to that reign. And um, it's going to definitely be, uh, you know, a little dicey. And I mean, we're going to have to see how it goes. But it looks like uh, that's the way things are standing right now with these uh, cryptos in Iran and the Marshall Islands. Did y'all have any comment about this uh, Marshall Islands crypto? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like we've covered them like uh, quite a few times since they really started floating this idea and really started running into outside financial connections being cut off. But I mean, ultimately, like, I really wish that they would not move with a a private currency like this especially the president talking about uh, like tagging people's identities into the system to be able to verify things i mean like yeah even with all of those things this could offer a benefit compared to the ridiculously harsh like situation they're in financially with connections to the outside world and just complications and friction to even domestic use of financial services but I really wish they would look into directly adopting Bitcoin. Like it's, it would be so much better in terms of just the sustainability of the system and like tightly wound linkages to the outside world. Yeah, that's a lot of trust to give up that they, they think, you know, they have to have. I mean, they got to have that. It's the way they feel. And um, I mean, I think that's the way they feel. It's just a, it's a big step. And I mean, some of those, some countries, I think will take that move and uh, it'll be interesting competition in the future. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just happening. It's incredible. I mean, like we discussed years ago talking about how Bitcoin's going to be in the center of geopolitics one day. And I mean, it's here, man. I mean, like, you know, the situation right now with the SWIFT network in Iran and, uh, you know, they're imposing hard sanctions from, you know, uh, Trump administration and they're trying to get that thing through. And I mean, it's 
it's uh it's incredible that we're at this point and i mean you know we're seeing it in all these different countries with the uh koreas and venezuela yeah so it's an interesting time and we're just gonna have to keep up to date with it and uh see how it goes yeah and one thing i want to point out for any uh you know, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin businesses who are thinking, hey, this is an opportunity to like make some inroads to Iran to use Bitcoin. Do not post that in your company's Slack channel. Okay. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that might get you in trouble. Yeah. There's some interesting stuff there going on with the what? that uh directive from trump with the petro and it's like how are these uh things gonna it's gonna be interesting to see the governance pop out of this stuff mm -hmm. all righty so sliding along to the next up to bat michigan has become the next in a long line of states to ban political contributions in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And like, there's really, really not much to say on this except kind of the line of reasoning going on, but it's, it's just, it's the same stupid shit. Like the, the Michigan campaign finance act um, specifically says contributions are a donation of money or anything of ascertainable monetary value. Um, emphasizing the value of any donation must be exact, precise, and certain, or can be determined with certainty. And so the, the rationale here in, in um, well, we'll pretty much just back this up real quick. There's um, somebody, uh, Mr. William Baker, who was running for state legislature on the 6th and ended up losing. And he actually wrote a letter to the finance board um, kind of asking for clarification and stating that it was self-evident that it, it was allowed to take donations in cryptocurrencies. And the board responded that it was not. And pretty much um, the, their line of reasoning was that the value fluctuates like stocks and commodities. So air quote, there is no way to ascertain the precise monetary value of one Bitcoin on any particular day. And this is really kind of absurd because like, again, this is you take a Bitcoin, you sell it, and the price you sell it at is the monetary value of that donation. Like, it's really that simple. And a, a lawyer who's actually commenting on this, uh, Mr. Stephen Middlebrook, is actually pointing out that campaigns are explicitly allowed to accept non-monetary or in-kind contributions, which are valued at the fair market value of the goods when received. And so like the, this, this rationale is just, it's absurd. And I think it's, it's really just people who are technically illiterate looking at headlines like you know drug dealers and terrorist funding going oh well these people could be donating to politicians now but it's like you're, you're required to give your name and identify yourself when making a political contribution the pricing issue is not an issue you you simply record the value when received or as would be more logical in this case when sold and th there's no issues here like th there's no way for a drug dealer to dump millions of dollars into a political campaign without being identified because he has to identify himself to make that donation. And the Federal Election Commission four years ago 
decided that it would be legal for PACs to accept uh, small donations in cryptocurrency. So on a federal level, it has been specifically approved that this is acceptable. And it's it's really like, it's just really kind of silly the, the way that these states one after another are starting to just like refuse to allow donations in cryptocurrencies, given that all of the, the, the points they keep bringing up when, you know, setting these rulings are just completely baseless. Like they're all something that can be dealt with or is dealt with already. And it really just reeks of just complete Ludditism and an inability to really understand it. Yeah, I mean, like uh, the new Colorado governor we got here uh, just elected, you know, he started accepting uh, donations back in 2014. Uh, I want to say, uh, you know, that's one of those uh, things I always hear people talk about as far as, uh, you know, first guys starting to accept crypto and, uh, you know, crypto government and people in government that are favorable to crypto. And I mean, nowadays we're starting to see like this these different legislations come out of different states and uh, different announcements coming out of different states. And it's really, it sounds like just market signaling. And it's so, it's kind of upsetting when you hear about Michigan because, you know, people that don't know Detroit is a terrible, uh, is in a terrible situation and in Flint, Michigan, like these two uh, cities were major industrial players back in, uh, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, the development of, uh, you know, the American automobile and they have a lot of factories there, something that probably should be used and repurposed for something like mining operations or, uh, you know, sort of like startup companies. These are the real like donators that would donate to a politician nowadays. And that idea of it just being like a drug dealer donating, you know, uh, I mean, like, yeah, it's just like kind of a knee jerk reaction of like, oh, you know, crypto bad, stay away. We don't, we don't want. And I mean, it's, it's a bad, bad market signal for a place like Michigan, where there is a lot of economic problems there. And it's something where they have public infrastructure that is not being used that they should be repurposing. But, you know, some of these states are in such a bad position, it's hard to say that they're actually going to be able to get themselves out. And that's where it's like, um, you know, we're really starting to see kind of a division of the states based through what people's opinions are on crypto and Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it's just a generational thing. You're going to have to watch these people slowly shuffle out the door and people who actually understand things shuffle in. I mean, it's and it's not just a cryptocurrency issue. It's technology in general. Like most of the people in government are just completely technically illiterate. And this really shows whenever any kind of technological issue comes up in politics. Like it's just something that they can't wrap their head around. And I mean, it's, it's really just a cultural thing. Like most politicians don't really work their way into serious positions uh, without age and that perceived like wisdom i guess you could say that comes along with it when really with how fast the world is progressing i mean that's the polar opposite of the reality like really the older you are like and not to say that people are stupid in general because they're old but the older you are like the less likely you are to actually understand the technological issues in a fast-changing world and that's just a fact yeah and i mean like this is you know 
harping back to these previous two stories is just like, uh, you know, Bitcoin and geopolitics and everything. I mean, it's upsetting that, you know, yeah, you know, with age does come wisdom. But I mean, with the politics and being handed this power and being placed in this power structure, you're not incentivized to, you know, take care of the public that elected you. You're not incentivized to uh, help those people. And you're not incentivized to keep up to date with technology. I mean, like the structures in place that, that got you here and you're here and, you know, now's the time to partake in this system where it's just, you know, grab whatever, uh, you know, assets are available and put them somewhere. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you think in that, I don't know, in this mafia structure, they would just be willing to grab anything that's worth the value. But, uh, you know, that's where it's like uh, maybe some of these people understand this is a real threat to the system. And, you know, they're, you know, hard players with this current uh, power structure and the way that that dynamic works. And, you know, they're all in and maybe they're going to fight it to the end. And that's where it's kind of upsetting for someone like me, where you see these different states. And, yeah, you know, the way that they could solve some of their problems with this technology, but it's just being hindered. So it's upsetting. Is what it is. But to move along, uh, we have another report uh, from quarter three out of GMO in Japan. And they're pretty much sitting on a loss of 640 million yen or around $5.6 million for its mining operations in the third quarter. And this is pretty much compounded uh, the losses from quarter two, which were around 3.2 million. And GMO is kind of pointing, obviously, at the uh, depreciation of hardware and the overall dropping of prices in the ecosystem. But they've been seeing an increase in revenue. So they're still ramping up the overall amount of hash rate that they're pumping out. And so far, um, in quarter three, they've mined around 1,500 Bitcoins and only 25 Bcash. <laughs> so for pretty much the entire quarter, almost all of their hash rate was pointed at Bitcoin. And the net hash rate has jumped to around 674 petahashes um, from around 479 um, in September. So over the last month in October, they drastically increased the amount of hash rate that they're operating and are attempting to get to around 800 petahashes um, within the year. And so while, you know, overall the mining operation is sitting on a loss, they're still increasing the, the size of the, the hash power that they're using right now. And their exchange business um, has actually been growing with uh, profits of around 6.5 million for the third quarter, which is up around 34% from quarter two, and a total revenue of around 11.9 million. And so they specifically also said that a lot of the profits uh, from their exchange is actually offsetting losses from the mining operation. So they're coming in at around, um, you know, slightly less than a million dollars in net profit between both of the businesses. And the last thing uh, going on is their, their new seven nanometer chip, the uh, B3 mining rig is actually um, delayed in shipping right now due to a uh, shortage of electronic components, which is actually something, you know, a, a decent amount of computer manufacturers have been dealing with uh, somewhat lately. And 
you know, it kind of sucks. You know, I'm, it's still, I still want to wait and see really how long this delay winds up being. But, you know, this could potentially have some effect on people who've actually purchased this hardware. I mean, obviously, every second counts in terms of getting that hardware delivered and plugged in, in terms of profitability and hitting your return on investment. So, you know, overall, the company is doing pretty well, even with their mining operations, realizing losses over the quarter. But, you know, this delay in the B3 shipping could potentially have some kind of reputational damage to them as far as, you know, consumer miners or especially any kinds of large operations that have put in sizable orders, you know, since they started selling them. And so, you know, for now they seem to be doing okay, but this could really kind of set them back a little bit in terms of trying to jump into the market and really give Bitmain a run for its money. Yeah, you don't like to see those things, but, uh, you know, it's something that I guess you could expect in this, you know, industry that is just blossoming outward, right? And, uh, I mean, I think it's pretty cool to see, like, how much uh, hash rate they've built up and what their goals are. And, like, you know, I, I think that this uh, transparency on their quarterly reports is pretty good for them, but, uh, you know, just to help build a reputation. But you're right. I mean, the delays are something that definitely could hurt the whole uh, idea of like, you know, becoming a real competitor. But I mean, we've seen these, uh, these happen before. So, I mean, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, I'm just happy to see them, you know, still putting out quarterly reports, even showing that they're, uh, you know, mining at a loss and, you know, what that means for the market and everything. I mean, that's pretty exciting, but uh, yeah, you don't want to see hardware get delayed and people get upset with that thing. Cause, uh, you know, there's just so many, there's not so many, but there's just these companies just coming into this and, uh, you know, any of these hiccups along the way could be pretty detrimental. Mm -hmm. And then we've got a, uh, a little bit of news coming out of China. Uh, so apparently on November 5th, uh, a lot of mining farms in uh, Xinjiang and um, Wazoo, I'm pronouncing the second one right, uh, had their electricity cut off and were subjected to uh, pretty much tax inspections and real name registration checks, which pretty much require that anybody actually operating mining equipment there or leasing it or anything of the sort has to actually have their real name recorded in a customer registry um, accessible and auditable by the Chinese government. And so as of now, it's um, really not clear, last I checked, whether power has been restored to these mining farms. But, you know, this is just yet again the, the next, I guess, news piece in, in a long string of actions by the Chinese government that have been clamping down harder and harder on mining operations in the country with, you know, their stated goal from last year to eventually like gently push all of these operations out of the country. And for those who remember our last show, this is where um, the, or, the, this is where Bitmain was supposedly deploying 90,000 ant miners um, in preparation for the Bitcoin cash hard fork. And it's not really clear right now, you know, how this has affected them, whether power has been restored to any of these farms and really what the end result of this operation is going to be. 
like um pretty much like the everything i've seen is that the uh companies operating these farms are being held to higher standards of enforcement for the real name system and so that kind of leads me to believe that they've maybe been skirting you know regulations or cutting corners a little bit there in terms of identity checks for their customers which might have been part of the reason for the shutdown and the inspection but you know, it's really the, the more stories like this pop up, the more unsustainable in the long term, it seems to me looking at it from the outside that large scale mining operations are going to be able to continue operating in China. Like there seems to just be more and more regulatory action, more crackdowns, more farms being shut down for not following regulations or laws properly. And like, it's really there there's no sign whatsoever that the Chinese government is going to let up in their attempts to slowly push these operations out of the country. Yeah, I mean, you know, moving those ninety thousand S nines around seems like kind of a you know, a move of desperation to try and get some real hash rate up for ABC. And uh that's what I was thinking right when I was reading this. I was like, oh man, this is where they were moving those and the power's out. I wonder how long this inspection's gonna last. I mean you know, this could really hurt uh, what they're planning on in the next day, in the next couple of days. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely something where maybe they were trying to uh, just see how they were going to react. Maybe they would allow them to move those. Maybe it was the press release that they were moving those that got them to do this uh, inspection because, yeah, they are clamping hard. They're clamping down hard on all this uh, enforcement. So it's hard to say what exactly that is or what's going on over there other than this isn't good timing, man. I mean, like, you know, the whole reason to move those over there was to get them spooled up and running. And, you know, that's going to take a, a, a little bit of time. So yeah, well, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll see what goes on. I mean, you know, depending on whether the power is not uh, been restored yet, this could really have some effect on Bitmain attempting to prepare for the, the hash rate war. I mean, if that power is still not on, then you're talking a serious deficit in terms of the hash rate that Bitmain has accessible for the, the fork tomorrow. Jeez, man. Yeah, and this is this is what I mean about Craig Wright being completely... You know, there's no nothing supporting his argument that he's going to have a significant effect in terms of bankrupting Bitmain because anything that's going to bankrupt Bitmain is going to be either things happening in China that are affecting their business or the fact that they're running their business poorly and they they made a very poor choice in terms of trying to migrate to Bitcoin Cash mostly and you know, not really coming through with their chips uh, like they promised. So, yeah, I feel like Craig Wright is still going to try and claim credit for whatever happens to them, but it really doesn't make sense. Like, pretty much every show that we've done, there's something about Bitmain screwing something up <laughs> in the past, like, couple months. Yeah. But, you know, speaking of Bitmain... Um... They, they have done a little bit of shuffling and rearranging on their board. And supposedly, Jihan Wu has now uh, been moved from being a director of the board to a supervisor. And really, the, the major important factor here is that he's not allowed to vote in board decisions anymore. 
So he does not really have as much of a direct influence in terms of the actual individual operating decisions uh, of the company at this point. And the article covering this does note that the S15s um, that recently went on sale have sold out. So that is um, going to be kind of interesting to see going forward because purportedly from rumors I've been hearing, they're pretty much been shut out from lines of credit with any of their chip manufacturers and are going to have to pay up front for any fab runs at this point. And, you know, as we saw on the last episode, they had an almost 25% yield loss in their seven nanometer productions, which is almost, it's more than twice, you know, the average bearable uh, loss in a chip run. And also, um, you know, again, as we recently covered, Antpool has stopped mining SegWit blocks, even though this is really just a loss of revenue for the pool, which is ran by Bitmain. And again, not really a rational business move when you're looking to maximize your profits right before an IPO, like taking an action that is going to intentionally make you less money just does not seem as really a rational business move. And then, you know, as far as the factors uh, Janine was just talking about in China, like we have the, the tariffs now um, in the United States against China that are definitely going to hit you know, a company like Bitmain in terms of dealing with U.S. customers. So really, I mean, you know, looking at all of this and then the ridiculously foolish decision of going so deep into Bcash and increasing their holdings of it so much, like, I really can't see any other reason for Jihan being moved out of a director position except a lot of other people with a stake in the company being very unhappy about some of the decisions that he's made. Like he has, you know, with the, with his influence in a lot of the decisions Bitmain as a whole has been taking, like they, they have lost a lot of money. And for a company with shareholders that is attempting to go public, I mean, that is absolutely not what any of them are going to want. Like they are, they don't care about ideology or Jihan's stupid opinions about Bitcoin. They want to see the company maximize its profits and get the biggest possible return on their investment. And every action that Jihan has been taking over the last year or so is just in almost complete contradiction with that goal. So really it, it makes like, he, he still has like an almost 20% share in the company. He still has a stake in it, but it, it makes perfect sense to me that other players in the company would push him out of a decision-making role given Bitmain's track record over the last year or two. Yeah, he hasn't been the very best uh, public figure. It's, uh, I mean, like his main quote used over here is the uh, blank your mother if you want to blank or fork your mother if you want to fork. Like that's uh, the main thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, just recently the you know, just like all this uh, bad news that's been coming out for Bitmain and just the information, like you're saying, about going so deep on Bcash and like, you know, we got this fork coming up. And I mean, like there's just been a lot of basically exposed bad decision making going on. And I mean, uh, maybe some people yeah, on that board are not too happy with them right now. And uh, especially when they're trying to do this IPO and you know, Bitfury's trying to do it too, trying to do an IPO as well. And it's like, you know, if they want to stay competitive, you know, they have to make some sort of move as a corporation. And, uh, you know, 
maybe putting Jahan, you know, down the supervisor and keeping him away from board decisions will satisfy the market. But I mean, like it might've already been like the damage is done. Like, uh, you know, he's already kind of spoiled the name with the ASIC boosting it with the overt ASIC boosting it, bleed, covert ASIC boosting it, bleed. And, um, you know, just uh, the way that all played out and the way that that whole argument stirred with the community for so long. And, and now all this bad decision-making, I mean, uh, it's definitely hurt their name, hurt their image. So they have to do something, right? I mean, you know, moving Jahan from a decision maker to a supervisor, it might satisfy people. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. For me, I mean, I think Bitmain's name's pretty, uh, pretty well tarnished. It's going to take a m bigger move than that for that to happen. Maybe start implementing some more SegWit stuff. Audio video tweaker in the troll box says Jihan couldn't woo the shareholders anymore. <laughs> Way to go, audio. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I think really the biggest tell we can possibly look for as to why, you know, this reshuffling was done is just keep an eye on Antpool. And if they do resume mining SegWit blocks, then I think that kind of goes to show that shortly after Jihan was removed from that position, that, you know, one of their actions reverses itself in a way that would be specifically catered towards making more profit. And if that happens, then I think we can kind of safely say the reason for him being removed was because of his poor decision making and its effect on the company's profits. Yeah, it would be cool to see that. Mm -hmm. But alrighty, alrighty. Next up. So, uh, sure, most of you probably won't remember, but a while back, uh, I, I am really bad at, at looking back for previous episode numbers with past stories compared to Janine. So I'll just leave it at a while back. Um, we covered a company, uh, DMG Blockchain Solutions, that was um, operating in Canada and building a new uh, mining farm in British Columbia. And, and really, the, the reason we covered this and kind of the distinguishing factor here was the fact that they are actually building out their own power. Okay, who, whoever is spamming the channel with fake viewers, fuck off. But... Um, yeah, but the uh, the power substation that they're building is really the differentiating factor in terms of their operation in that they're not dependent on the entire grid that the normal consumers are using for the delivery of their electricity. And so when it comes to the, the power plant to their operation, like a, a lot of the big issues with mining farms in, in different areas uh, of the West lately has been the grid capacity and having to kind of look at prioritizing consumer use over, you know, the, the mining operation. And most of the places have kind of decided that in the event of a uh, choice there, they would cut off the mining farms and divert that electricity to consumer uses. And with its own substation here, like DMG really doesn't have to deal with that because they're, they're not on the consumer grid. Like their limitation is how much power there is to deliver to their operation. And there's not really that, that choice that has to be made in terms of who gets power when the grid is at capacity. 
but their farm is now back on operation or it's it's operating now and it, it was a little late in the actual uh, bringing it online but you know this is going to be an interesting thing to see like how far can they really push this operation and how much worth can they get out of that substation and do other operations really start following suit because this being one of the biggest delivery or power delivery issues in terms of mining operations and problems they've been having with local jurisdictions. I mean, it really makes sense in the long term to start looking at building out operations like this and kind of removing that problem that they keep having with local jurisdictions they operate in. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I remember that story, uh, like you're saying, it's a while back. But, uh, you know, when we were talking about just uh, basically all these different contracts that they were getting flooded with and they had to basically slow things down. And so it's good to see it getting operational. And, yeah, like you're saying, just put this stuff to the test to where basically policymakers can kind of uh, calm down about or basically just see, like, what they need for these uh, contracts to be legitimate. And so they could see, like, okay, well, this is how much you know, these miners are taking on this power, like you're saying you need this much power. You know, there was a lot of that, like fudging the numbers there with that to where they could get away with it because it's just so unknown. But after this, uh, you know, these DMG miners start up, like this uh, this mining firm starts up and, you know, or they have started up, like now that they get some operation under their belt, you know, and some people looked at some facts and they see like how exactly it's operating, you know, I think they'll be a little bit more, uh, you know, concise in their policy making. I mean, it's like, it really is the only way to deal with the issue. Like if, if you don't build out your own substation like this, then you're going to have to deal with the problems in, in terms of local governments and how they're going to prioritize electrics or electricity delivery. Like it's. Um, so I think I found the episode where you previously discussed it. The topic was Canadian Bitcoin miners building their own power grid. And that was at 24 minutes of block digest 119. I knew you were going to grab that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, like uh, you know, yeah, I just want to say like people that are in this uh, room don't get uh, discouraged thinking you can't chat because there's a crazy number watching the stream. It's not real. Yeah, fuck spammers. This, this fucking shitbag just did this on WCN like a week or two ago too. Wait. Is there really 500 watching? No, it's a fucking master stream pro. I'm like, oh god, that guy to contact us so we could fucking buy fake views, fucking piece of shit. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh well, let's let's just keep rolling with it. Like you're saying, chat. Don't worry about the number. You know, it's still just us. Yeah, I thought it was weird because he came into the chat and he was like, hi, can I contact you? And I'd never seen him before, so I was like, well, I don't know, we have a mumble. Mm -hmm. All right, so next up, um, a little more action going on um, between Japan and Africa. So Sampo, a uh, big Japanese insurance company, has entered into a partnership with uh, BitPesa, uh, the remittance company in Africa, and put in 570 million yen to buy out a 10% stake in uh, BitPesa. 
So, I mean, this is the, the second major company now to really get involved from uh, Japan with BitPesa. You know, we've gone over a lot of details in the past about a, a lot of the, the remittance and trade markets between Japan and Africa, specifically in terms of like technology goods and secondhand things like cars or, you know, other reusable products. I mean, Japan and a lot of the traditional finance companies there really seem to be, you know, some in Bitcoin, some other shit coins like Ripple, but it just in general seem to really be looking at everything in this space in terms of like removing as much friction as possible in the payment rails between Japan and Africa, just because like the, the more friction you can remove, the easier you make, you know, enabling trade between these two areas and you know it, it's never a bad thing and this is generally something that a lot of developed countries really compete over is those economic channels between themselves and developing countries because as economies keep developing and expanding in places like africa like the consumers there the better they do the more income they have access to the more employment opportunities they have like the you're looking at a burgeoning middle class eventually and the middle class likes to buy things. So really anybody who can position themselves as the other end of that business arrangement, they stand to make a lot of money. And it's also just, you know, like seeing things like this, like I, I like seeing things like this way more than just nonsense. Like another Western company launches a debit card or a new shit coin is listed on Coinbase because like things like this are actually doing what Bitcoin set out to do, which is provide financial services to those who don't have access to them. I mean, like that's what this is about at the core of it at the end of the day. And, you know, companies who are actually doing that deserve way more credit and way more notoriety than some shit bags like Coinbase who constantly like to bandy on and virtue signal about how they're helping do these things when in reality, they're literally not doing a damn thing to bring financial services to people like this. In fact, they're actively avoiding it because of the, the regulatory concerns and not being willing to take a risk to actually do that. They just like to put some feel good headline out and not actually do anything to try to get credit for something. They're not doing a damn thing to do. Yeah, man, I like the story too. Like you're saying, you know, just to see people uh, get involved in some of these areas that are really like important as far as the development of uh, showing, you know, Bitcoin's use case and also sort of like edging out these economic niches and, uh, you know, remittance is a big one. And it is one where we do see people virtue signal about and it's uh, and, you know, that's a important value proposition of Bitcoin. It's one of these things that I wish people would set up more here in this country and then in Mexico to try and get uh, some remittance for these uh, people that are here working their dollars, wages, and then giving it to Western Union or uh, MoneyGram. But, uh, you know, that's just, yeah, I guess it's evidence of just like how, you know, few there are people really trying to help. So it's good to see like uh, BitPesa, you know, these guys that are doing something useful, get some uh, investment. And like you're saying, you know, just from an insurance perspective, uh, you know, this is one of those uh, 
one of those industries where we know that uh, insurance is trying to get into Bitcoin and crypto and trying to, you know, lock down the custody and insure these things. So I'm sure that they're going to have some crossover use case for all this, too. So, uh, yeah, just an interesting bit of news for something that's actually going on positive in this space. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I almost feel like I need to start a incorporate a business to actually get this thing done. It's just like you start to see like how few people are actually helping. It's like, man, you got to do it almost. But yeah, like uh, it's good to see. Mm -hmm. Alrighty. And next up, a bit of news out of Germany, which is actually pretty interesting. And I hope uh, Janine will have a lot to pitch in here. You know, one of, one of the big issues um, in Germany, at least from my perspective, is a lot of strict requirements and, and things like you know, local Bitcoins being banned. Like they, they've effectively set up regulations where it's very favorable in some sense, such as, you know, not having to pay any kind of capital gains if you've held for a year or more. But on the other hand, like there's a lot of strict KYC AML requirements to the point where something like local Bitcoins is not allowed to legally operate. So there really isn't any widespread, like on the ground way to trade or buy Bitcoin. But um, the Bitcoin Group SC, uh, which is the parent company of uh, Bitcoin.de, um, pretty much the only uh, regulated exchange in Germany has actually just uh, bought 100% of the shares of uh, Tremel uh, Wertpaper Handelsbank, um, an, a small investment bank in Germany. And they're, they're planning on really building out based on this. I mean, first off, they're uh, planning on building out commercial banking services out of this because it's, it's primarily functioned just as an investment bank. So like uh, not something really to go get a checking or a savings account at. And secondly, um, the licenses that this bank had would actually allow them to start operating cryptocurrencies, um, ATMs in Germany, which is something, again, like local Bitcoins that hasn't really been allowed. Like I, I believe Janine mentioned a few episodes ago, they had just put up um, an ATM in Frankfurt, and it was really kind of confusing as to the the legality of that at the time. And as well, um, a bar in um, Germany recently put its ATM back into operation that had been taken down a long time ago. And so, you know, with seeing a company like this, having now the legal ability to build out ATM infrastructure and give a, a simpler way for people to really get their hands on Bitcoin, as opposed to having to jump through all the hoops of registering at an exchange, doing the whole KYC procedure. And given the very friendly tax laws, whereas like once you've held for a year or more, you can effectively spend it freely as a currency without wor worrying about capital gains taxes. Like this, I think really is kind of setting the groundwork for a lot of people to start onboarding in Germany. Like it's removing a lot of the, the friction to getting on board. And really, once you pass that year mark, unlike a place like the United States, like you don't have any of the, the red tape to deal with in terms of spending it. Like you can just spend it and treat it as a currency without having to deal with all the complexities of tracking all, 
all of the prices, the prices you you bought something at, and having to deal with capital gains at the end of the year. So I think th- like this could wind up being a very positive thing in terms of Bitcoin adoption in Germany in the long run. Yeah. So a bit of background on the local Bitcoin situation in Germany. Um, I think I've t- I think I tweeted about it maybe last year or 2016, but um, another time where Craig Wright said something very arrogant that he had no, no idea about. Um, when the whole scaling debate was happening, he was saying that, um, oh, these times that I visited Berlin, I've noticed that fewer and fewer places are using Bitcoin or accepting Bitcoin. Um, and he equated, like he said, the reason for that was because the blocks are too full or the fees were too high. But really the reason was because, um, as Shinobi said, there's not a lot of easy ways to access Bitcoin in Germany outside of just using KYC exchanges. Obviously, there are people just there are people who are doing local Bitcoins type activity where they just buy and sell with each other, but they don't obviously have. There's not a, you know a place or a website or anything that they particularly use for that um, because local Bitcoins was, I believe, banned in 2014 sometime um and also atms there's almost no atms except for that one that popped up recently in frankfurt um and when that one did pop up in frankfurt people were thinking like well i don't know how long this is gonna last i i didn't actually look who was responsible for that atm i don't know if it was this company uh or not but yeah people were worried that it was going to get shut down really fast um and obviously you know having one bitcoin in the entire or one bitcoin atm in the entire country is not as helpful um as it could be so yeah it's definitely a good sign if um if germany is being a little more lax about it and willing to let atm stop or start popping up more because it's that seems to be the trend um like we saw that one come up in new york uh the only thing i'm worried about is that they'll repeat what new york did which is they gave a bit license to an atm company um or a company running atms but then they said you have to have all these strict kyc requirements where you had to show a selfie and a driver's license and um have a phone number and stuff like that uh i'm i mean there's going to be a lot more resistance to that in germany um doing that kind of stuff so i don't know if uh if that's the kind of requirements that the german government will place on atms that start popping up from this company i don't know if uh that's going to be as successful if they do a lot of kyc uh requirements yeah, I got to go through those KYC requirements here. But, uh, you know, I mean, like there still is people using local Bitcoins and, you know, people moving around Bitcoin, but, uh, you know, peer to peer. And yeah, but I mean, I imagine that this investment bank is going to play at least a role in helping shape that. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, probably a pretty big part. I mean, in these investment banks, I don't know how big this investment bank is, but I mean, like... Uh, you know, could play a big part in making sure that uh, people do have access to Bitcoin ATMs. So, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the potential of like KYC friction is definitely there. But I mean, even if so, I mean, I the you know the process would be a lot less nonsense to deal with than an exchange and constantly sending in documents 
movements and long wait time ATM. Like that, that would have to be a much quicker procedure. It, it's, you know, it's not really reasonable to expect somebody to walk up, scan documents or something, and then have to like go home and wait for an approval. Like it, it has to be something that can be done seamlessly there at the ATM and then act with your Bitcoin at the end of it. I love how the troll box is treating the view count like a price. <laughs> I know, man. I'm just like looking at it. It's like, oh, we found our support. We're going to new all-time highs. It's it's a it's a joke, though, guys. This is it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny, but yeah, it's kind of getting some of us a little upset. But it's all right. It's just <sighs> yeah, Max Stream Pro. You are not going to get any money from us, you fucking moron. We do not game metrics. We are not going to pay you. So fuck off. Thank you. Crazy that that's the way they do it. They're like, oh, look, we can do this. We can make money. It's like, get out of here, man. All right. So last story up. I think we're going to run a little under time today. Uh, the Lightning Network has recently passed 4,000 public nodes. And woohoo. I'm sorry, 4,000 nodes total um, with around 2,900 public. And there's really no way to identify nodes that are completely hidden. But this brings us up to a total network capacity of 112 Bitcoin, so around $709,000. And I mean, it's not really the best metric as we don't really have any indication of liquidity allocations and total possible payments out of that. But I mean, it's still like something to celebrate. Like this is still a protocol that's being actively developed and a hell of a lot of work to be done, but it's still continuing to grow and still, you know, getting more and more usable. I mean, like every time I look, I see more shops and more places to pay with things in Bitcoin. And I mean, like when I was in Germany, um, in Berlin for the Lightning Hackathon, um, Room 77 actually integrated Lightning payments uh, like right after the hackathon that night. And I'm still pissed that nobody told me this while I was at the hackathon because I didn't have time to load up my Lightning wallet to pay with it. But I mean, you know, things are really streaming along. Like there's like the, the watchtower support in LND is now actively being worked on, which will allow receives over mobile wallets. Like there's still a ton of things being worked out and improved in the spec. And like at the end of the day, when all of this gets fleshed out, we still have L2 to roll out. If we can push through a soft fork for SIG hash, uh, no input which is going to be a huge improvement in terms of how much data users' wallets and watchtowers have to keep track of. Like it's going to enable actual practical work on channel factories and starting to flush out the problems with that. I mean, like there, there is going to be a steady curve of improvement for a long time to come. And it's just really fucking awesome to see how far it's come since mainnet went live. Do we have any idea how many Bcash nodes are still left or how many, how many, uh, cause I mean, we know we're, everyone's watching the hash rate, but I want to know like, what are the nodes doing on each side of the Bcash fork? Nodes don't matter, man. Yeah, they don't matter, but I still want to see it because <laughs> I can bet, I can bet you that there are more lightning nodes than Bcash nodes. I'll bet you 10,000 fake Satoshis. You're right. <laughs> 10,000 test net Satoshis. <laughs> 
Yeah. Can you imagine if the, because, you know, now people are starting to talk in terms of Satoshis instead of Bitcoins. So are Bcashers going to call them fake Satoshis? <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, maybe they'll just call them Fatoshis, you know. Mm -hmm. oh, man. But it's, you know, it's like, it's really like this is just fucking impressive as hell. Like atomics or submarine swaps between payment channels and lightning are really looking like they're going to be ready hopefully by the time watchtowers are out there for normal people to use like that will help with some liquidity issues and it's like once once those watchtowers hit like end user wallets can really start getting tweaked in terms of improving usability you know, removing anything that might confuse like non-technical users and we can really start moving forward with this. Like, Yeah, man, going back to, yeah, just lightning nodes and the, getting that all moving forward. It's incredible to see that just like uh, jump up over this past year, 4,000 nodes. We've had like a few hack days and like the amount of stuff that's been churned out there is incredible. And uh you know, I've seen some interesting stuff. You know, we we saw Satoshi's place way back, but now we're starting to see some things with like uh, Lightning Chess and, you know, being able to, uh, you know, put some financial incentive there for winning the game of chess and all these uh, different little, you know, like vending machine lightning. It's, stuff is really coming forward. And, uh, you know, I get excited when we're in the mumble and, you know, you hear some people talking about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm having some trouble with my lightning node or I'm syncing it here or I just set up that BTC pay server or my Electrum personal server. It's uh it's it's awesome that it's all getting, you know, flushed out and gets me excited. Yeah, I guess you were wrecked, man. Sorry. Well, I guess that leaves us uh uh, 10 minutes to go for final thoughts unless anybody's got anything more to say on lightning um no i was gonna say a final thought just to give a heads up to anybody who's watching uh maybe some of those robots you know uh we got a couple of meetups here in the area coming up uh we got the boulder valley bitcoin meetup at a local pub here tomorrow evening and uh there's the uh, bitcoin and beer meetup in denver on November 20th. And uh, there is also this uh, interesting little event at CU going on this weekend about a uh, tech stars startup, decentralized startup, which I might go check out too. So uh, yeah, those things are going on. And also uh, just grab your stomach, guys. We're going low, but that's all right. Grab your stomach and your wallets. I I don't even want Dan anybody Darko. to... <laughs> yeah, Dan Darkpill is Where back. are you? <laughs> Yeah, he's wrong. We're not going to get through this. Stop giving them false hope, Dan. What? Guys, seriously, I don't even <laughs> want I don't even want people to send me messages about the price unless it hits 5,000. Like don't even tell me cuz I don't care. You just might. The lower it goes, the more bitcoin I get when I get paid. That's what I'm thinking. This dollar cost average every bump down. All right, Janine, so explain your thoughts. So this is a funny thing that I saw, I think it was yesterday. Um, so if anyone has been following the situation between Google and 
everyone in Berlin who really does not Google want Google to come to Berlin. Uh, there was a lot of protests in the last several months because Google was thinking about establishing a campus in Berlin, specifically in Kreuzberg, which really did not want Google to come. They literally uh, occupied the space that uh, I th were at least one of the spaces that Google was planning to use, and they were successful in keeping Google out of Kreuzberg. Um, and apparently now the district of Lichtenberg is offering a building, an alternative building for Google to use uh, in Berlin. And it just happens to be the old Stasi, uh, which is the secret service that was in power um, during the GDR. Uh, it's the old Stasi building that has been empty and for some reason has not been turned into a historical site for, you know, all of the surveillance atrocities that inspired the uh, movie The Lives of Others. Um, apparently they won't offer it to Google. And on some level, I actually think it's perfect because Google may actually end up becoming the modern Stasi if it isn't already. So I don't know how I feel about this. I feel like it would be... I feel like the symbology of it would almost be worth just letting Google have it because it would just be so hilarious. Yeah, I think that would be funny. I mean, like I kind of get sickened because, you know, Google's a little local here and uh, I've seen them building out these little headquarters. And to me, it's just such a, it's like a McDonald's CIA. It's just like, it's like a, it's like a CIA that's friendly for you to walk in and, and talk to them and look at their, I don't even know if you could walk in there, but I mean, they make it look all like just like, oh, it's a great place to hang out. Yeah, I mean, I can I went as soon as I saw this tweet, like the image popped in my head of someone doing a remake of the lives of others, which if you haven't seen that movie, it's a great movie available. I mean, it's obviously in German, but you can watch it with English subtitles. Um, I can see someone making a remake of lives of others with Google as the Stasi and like the consequences of surveillance and how it may affect Google employees. You know, we're having this whole walkout thing. We could have that in the remake and yeah. Oh, and it appears that we have our own Google problem because YouTube has no support email anymore for reporting spammers or view count spammers. So yeah. On our own, man. Fake, <laughs> fake. Hey, can we title our next show Fake Views? No. <laughs> fake Views off by one. I'm waiting for the Donald Trump tweet that says Fake Views. Oh my god. Like, fucking scammer pieces of shit. Like, you're not getting any money from us. Fuck off. Like, I know half of these views are still fake. Maybe maybe not quite half, well, but what's your final thought? Sorry. Well, um, nothing. Uh, fuck you, Max Stream Pro. Uh, get fucked. You're wasting your time because you're not going to get any money out of us. And then I guess um, hopefully we'll be doing a Fork live stream tomorrow, although no. all the details are still up in the air. Um, we might have some more people with us if we do it. And, it might not um, don't happen. Be 
yeah, don't be angry if it doesn't happen because I'm going to have to now try to throw all the details and shit together when I get off the air and I might get lazy and not give a shit. Yeah, and plus, you know, I don't know, sometimes it takes like 24 hours, 48 hours before you really start getting the actual news on this stuff. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I would Already. I would like to not yes, attend the live stream of a slap fight. <laughs> People are calling this a war. It's a slap fight. Yeah. And also, um, it appears it appears that the commerce block brigader has now left the troll box, maybe, or he's just quiet. But I would like to end the show by saying that Shinobi is more of a ninja, as Blake said on Twitter. Um, Shinobi is more of a ninja than any of you will ever be. Who <laughs> that? All right, on that note, toodaloo, everybody. We will see you maybe tomorrow, and if not, Sunday. Adios.